0: Bismillahirrahmanirrahim Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen Wa sallallahu wa sallam Mubarak ala sayyidina wa maulana muhammadin Wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam Allahumma alimna ma yanfa'una wa anfa'na Bima wa zidna min tadlika ilman wa ta'aleema Inna ka ala kulli shay'in qadir رَبِّيَشْرَحْ لِصَدْرِي وَيَسِّرْ لِأَمْرِي وَاحْلُ الْعُقْدَةً مِّن لِسَانِي يَفْقَهُ قَوْلِي أَمَّا بَعْدْ السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته Uh, Alhamdulillah, for a while there, I wondered when we would get to this evening. This program, this Fardain program, came as an idea, it's a very small idea. And that's one of the wondrous things. Sometimes something comes as a small suggestion or a small seed and it gets planted and tended to and watered and over time, it grows into something quite significant, quite large, larger than one anticipated. And alhamdulillah, we've been covering the fardu'een for now, I think exactly two years. Because we began in November of 2021, subhanallah, it's a long time. And when you type in Farda'in on YouTube, this is the first thing that pops up. I haven't tried Google, but I wouldn't be surprised if it's similar. At least it's the first video. Uh, There are lots of different programs out there. Of different mashayikh and teachers in various communities teaching fardain. But I don't think there's any of them that is as detailed and as extensive as this one. Because we endeavored to teach the fardain not in a quick fashion of just covering the basics and getting them over with. We wanted to actually go deeper. And that's led us to talk about more than just the bare minimum of fardain. We've talked about the layers and to get a proper, deeper understanding of what is Farda'ayn. And as I've said a few times before, the Fardain course that we've been doing together, uh, it's not meant to be a one-time thing that you study and you never return to. The idea is that you review this knowledge and that's the major reason why we have the slides. Uh, The slides are meant for you to read, to go back to, to review. And inshallah once we finish with this and uh, get some time We want to take all the slides and put them into a proper format uh, Like a book format, better organized and uh, easier to read inshallah So you all have that And tonight is the final class, alhamdulillah And tonight's class is of course module 11 which concerns miscellaneous matters, various things that can be considered fard individually obligatory knowledge, that isn't easily categorized or organized into the previous modules. And tonight's session is about two things. Number one, enjoining the good and forbidding the evil. That's one. And the other is, Al da'wah to calling to Allah, giving da'wa. So these are two things, Al Ammu bin Ma'ruf, Wannahi munkar, number one, and Al Dawa to Allah, number two. And let's just explain what those terms mean and then look at how they could be Farda'in or maybe not Farda'in. The first is Al Ammu bin Ma'ruf. This is one of those phrases many Muslims are used to hearing even if Arabic isn't their first language Because al-amr uh, bil-ma'roof, commanding the good, that is a very central theme of the Qur'an The idea of standing up for what is right and enjoining and commanding what is right So ma'ruf is what is good, what is wholesome, what is moral, what is right and that is the first component the second being an nahyu anil munkar or forbidding the evil so we enjoin what is right what is wholesome what is moral and we forbid what is evil what is wrong and what goes against the proper way so ma'ruf is broader than just khayr or ta'ah obedience ma'ruf is what is recognized as good as what is wholesome and moral and upright. And Munkar is anything that is bad, evil, wrong, unjust, unwholesome, immoral, and so on. As far as da'wah is concerned, the term ad da'wah to Allah, right? Inviting others to Allah. The simple meaning of that is to invite people to become Muslim. Now, there is a da'wah we can give. To Muslims But that da'wah we give to Muslims Is not a da'wah Inviting them to become Muslim They're already Muslim So that is largely Commanding the good and forbidding the evil That's the kind of da'wah we would give to our fellow Muslims So these Things Commanding the good and forbidding the evil And inviting others to Allah These are generally Fard kifaya They're community obligations They're not uh, Individual obligations on every single Muslim. And some of the ulama have said that these two things are the most challenging commands in Islam besides controlling your own nafs. You think about all the different divine commands revealed in the Quran or mentioned in the Sunnah, some are easier than others depending on the person, some are harder than others depending on the person. But some scholars say that broadly the hardest things would be commanding the good and forbidding the evil and inviting others to Allah and uh, disciplining your own nafs, your own ego, when you have bad habits. So we said that the basis for these is that they're faruqifaya, they're community obligations. They're not obligatory on everyone. So that begs the question, why are we talking about it in ain why are we bringing it up in this class is generally ford kifaya to command the good and forbid the evil but there are situations where certain conditions line up where it actually does become a duty so although in general it's a community obligation there are situations where it could be an individual duty so we should at least know what those conditions are Where it might be an obligation on us So that if that happens We know exactly what's going on And how to do it And if it's possible How we would do it And so on Same thing for da'wah Da'wah is generally a community obligation However there's an important point We have to make here And this uh, This is the I guess you could call it Al-Haqq al al the The default ruling in the Sharia, the default ruling is that it's actually forbidden for a Muslim to migrate from the lands of Islam, Darul Islam, to the lands of Darul Kufr. And now there's definitions of these terms. What do they mean? But generally speaking, that's the default ruling. Uh, and residing in Darul Kufr, which would be Basically, any land where Islam is not the law of the land, residing in those places is permissible can, on the condition that the person can practice their deen unencumbered, ilharud deen, and that they can invite others to Allah. And that da'wah does form a part of their reason for living in that, in that status. And we'll get to that, inshaAllah. So We're going to talk about enjoining the good and forbidding the evil And its conditions and different details When you look at the mission of the Prophet Muhammad You see that it was all about commanding the good and forbidding the evil Because what is the greatest good? The greatest good is Tawheed Iman La ilaha illallah So when he's doing dawah Calling the idol worshippers to the truth he is enjoining the good and he is forbidding evil When he gives guidance on ethics and behavior He is commanding the good and forbidding the evil And that is the way of all of the Prophets And that is the way of all of the inheritors of the Prophets Anyone who is a rightful, warith, inheritor, heir to the Prophet Sallallahu Has to have some share of enjoining the good and forbidding the evil And calling others to Allah Ta'ala Now we have a verse in the Qur'an, uh, in Surah Al-Ma'idah, where Allah Ta'ala condemns Bani Israel collectively because they had forsaken this practice of enjoining the good and forbidding the evil among themselves. And there is a hadith from Ibn Mas'ud that he relates from the Prophet who said that the very first defect, fault that affected Bani Israel is in the way that a man would meet another and say to him fear Allah and abstain from what you're doing for it's not halal for you. So this person is Commanding the good and forbidding the evil. But then he would meet that person the next day and find no changes in him. But this would not prevent him from eating with him, drinking with him, and sitting in his gatherings. And when it came to this, Allah led their hearts into evil ways on account of their association with others. So this hadith is very frightening because it tells you the importance of maintaining an atmosphere within the ummah where we can command the good and forbid the evil, and where we're receptive to being commanded to what is good and forbidden from what is evil if we fall into it, because none of us are perfect. And if that becomes forsaken, where people just say, you know, mind your own business, who are you to judge, you know? Uh, then we become like Bani Israel in that way, where they do all sorts of evils and the other side doesn't even forbid them. They just let it go. So we have to talk about what this means and how it's done. Another narration says that the punishment for abandoning this obligation of commanding the good and forbidding the evil is sweeping. It it, it is wide-ranging and afflicts both the righteous and the corrupt beware of a strife or a fitna that does not only affect those who wronged themselves but it affects even those who didn't wrong themselves this is a quranic reality that people don't want to accept and that quranic reality is that when people forsake the deen uh, and commanding the good and forbidding the evil is neglected, uh, everyone gets affected by that negatively, even those who are not actually doing evil, even pious people. They get impacted negatively by the consequences of evil spreading in society when people are not trying to rein it in and create a positive change. Ibn allan siddiqi who many of you will be familiar with because we've quoted him several times in the Riyadh al salihin class because he has a commentary on that book. He comments on this narration and says that the punishment for forsaking al-amr bil-ma'roof wal-nahiyya'an al-munkar manifests as the tyranny of leaders, you know, the zulm of rulers and the, the, the domination of enemies, dominating over the people, and other forms of tribulation. And This is very similar to what we were talking about today in Jum'ah. That when you find that happening, it comes as a consequence. Right? So it's a very, uh, it's an attitude of Bani Israel to think that you can do whatever and then it's always someone else's fault and that we don't have some share to blame in the oppression and the tyranny that we experience. right? So a person as an individual can be innocent and God-fearing, but they still face the consequence or they feel the effect of this deadening of sensitivity in society to what is right and what is wrong. So to lift that, we should play a role in whatever capacity we can to command the good and forbid the evil in those circles of influence that we have to the best of our ability, provided we fulfill the conditions. So, we want to talk about those conditions now, inshallah. The ulama, when they talk about conditions, shurut, there are conditions for obligation and then there's conditions for permissibility. When we say conditions for obligation, it means that. If those conditions are not met, it's not actually obligatory on you to try to change that evil. It's not obligatory on you to command the good and forbid the evil. It may be allowed in some circumstances, but it wouldn't be obligatory on you. That means that if you didn't do it, you're not sinful. You're not neglecting an obligation. So the shuru of wujub, the conditions of obligation, are as follows. And the, the slides aren't working on the projector. So if you want to consult the slides on the WhatsApp group, they're there. Condition number one, for commanding the good and forbidding the evil to be obligatory, the person doing the commanding has to be legally accountable. That Mukallaf. That excludes children. So children do not have an obligation to command the good and forbid the evil. They can still do it. But it's not obligatory on them. The person has to be a Muslim. So that excludes non-Muslims. And the person has to be capable of enjoining the good and forbidding the evil. They have to have istifa'ah, the capacity. So that's going to exclude those who are unable. And we'll explore what that means later. So you have to be accountable, Muslim, and able to actually command the good and forbid the evil. Number four, the one who is commanding the good and forbidding the evil has to have sound knowledge of what they are commanding. Who does that exclude? People who don't have knowledge. They don't really know if that's something that they should be forbidding or enjoining. So you have to have knowledge. And number five, a condition for obligation is that they have to be reasonably sure that the other party will actually listen and take heed. If they are reasonably sure that the person they want to command or forbid is going to ignore them, they're reasonably sure, you know, prior experience or whatnot, if they know that that person won't listen, it's not obligatory. They can still do it, but it's not wajib on them if they have reasonable certainty that they're not going to listen. And number six, for it to be obligatory, one has to have a reasonable expectation that it's not going to lead to a greater harm or worsen the situation. Right? There's a, there's a famous story of a, a Damascan scholar and he was there during, uh, after the Mongol invasion, when the Mongols were ruling that area. And he was walking one day with some of his students. And as they're walking through the streets, they saw some Mongol soldiers tripping and falling and laughing in a state of drunken stupor. They were drunk. So his students began to speak out and criticize them and attack them for drinking publicly. But the sheikh said to them, be quiet, because them being drunk actually prevents them, in their drunkenness, they're prevented from actually doing worse harms, So just leave it, right? So if you think it's going to lead to a greater evil, you have a reason to believe that, then it wouldn't be obligatory on you to command the good and forbid the evil. So those are the conditions for obligation. Now you have conditions for its validity. Conditions for validity mean shuru'tul For it to be sound and correct Certain conditions have to be in place So some, some of these overlap with the others So capability, being able to do it If you can't do it, if you can't speak out And you can't change it with your hand When you see some evil taking place You default to the third level Which is to hate it in your heart And that's based on the hadith that most of you know The Hadith of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam: Whoever among you sees an evil, let him change it with his hand. And whoever is unable, let him change it with his tongue. And whoever is unable to change it with their tongue by speaking out, let them change it with their heart by hating it. And that is the lowest degree of faith with regards to commanding the good and forbidding the evil. So that's a condition for validity. Another condition of validity is that you have to have a sound knowledge and understanding of what exactly you're commanding or forbidding. And the ulama say that this means if you are going to take up this obligation, you have to know. The, the sharia, you don't have to be a scholar necessarily But you really do need to know the sharia So you have to know whether that thing is really condemnable in the sharia So if there is a valid difference of opinion among qualified scholars about that issue being permissible or impermissible Then you're not actually allowed to condemn the other person for doing it, right? What that means in simple terms is we only command the good and forbid the evil in matters that are good or matters that are evil according to ijma'ah, scholarly consensus. So there's ijma'ah that uh, stealing money is haram. There's no difference of opinion about that. You would command the good and forbid the evil in that matter. But what about something like Okay, we'll give an example. What about smoking? Do you command the good and forbid the evil over smoking? There's a difference of opinion. There's no ijma'ah on it being haram. So even if you sincerely believe it's haram and you have your reasons, it's a valid view. Because there is a pre-existing khilaf, mu'tabar, a a well-considered, respectable difference of opinion among scholars, you do not command the good and forbid the evil over that issue does that mean you don't give the person advice or share your opinion that it's haram no you could do that you could tell them i believe this is haram and it's harmful and i advise you to leave it you could you could counsel them you know you can even give them a very uh, strong exhortation trying to convince them of that view that's fine, but what you're not allowed to do is as I, I know I one know individual who would do this actually uh, If he saw someone outside of the masjid smoking, he would just grab the cigarette from their mouth and crush it on the ground um, you, you don't have a right to do that You don't have a right to do that, even if you hate smoking and you think it's haram Because there's no ijma' that is forbidden, you just have to advise them, right? So this means that commanding the good and forbidding the evil relates to clear matters that are generally known by all muslims so yeah so if there's a difference of opinion you give nasiha you can you can even try to convince them of your view but it can't be at the level of trying to stop it with your hand or condemning them with your words so another condition for validity is that you are reasonably sure that they're going to hear and listen. So this is, we said, it's it's a condition for its obligation. And if you are reasonably sure they're not going to listen, it's not obligatory for you, and you can give them advice, but you don't have to command or forbid that action. And this is the opinion of Imam al-Bajuri, Imam al-Qarafi, Imam al hasqafi Ibn al and others. And that's hinting at the fact that there are some ulama who say that no, even if you are reasonably sure they won't listen, you can still do it. So even in some of these conditions, there are some differences of opinion about the conditions themselves. Some of the ulama say it doesn't matter. Even if you are sure they're not going to listen, you still can command the good and forbid the evil. So what we would say is that if you're reasonably sure they're going to ignore you, it's not wajib on you to do it. But you can still do it. And the basis for this view is actually in the Qur'an. Right? In Surah Al-A'raf, Allah Ta'ala mentions a previous community from Bani Israel where a group of them were commanding the good and forbidding the evil against their people who were violating the Sabbath. And it was asked of them uh, Why do you exhort these people When Allah is going to destroy them For violating the Sabbath And their answer Allah records their answer As a lesson for us They said قَالُوا yarjiun. It is uh, At least I don't know how you translate that exactly But It's basically a way of saying Ya Allah We can't change anything, but because we have some ghayrah over the deen, we're going to speak out even if they don't change. Because it's still evil. It's better to speak out against an evil that, you know, the person won't listen than to witness the evil and just keep quiet if you can speak out. So it's not wajib, but you can still do it provided there's no greater harm happening. So, if you are reasonably sure that they're going to listen, then you should do it. Uh, If you can do it, but you don't think they're going to listen, and you know that it's not going to cause a greater harm, then you can do it. But if they're not going to listen, and it's going to create a greater evil, a greater harm, either something impacting you or your family or other people, in that case you leave it. Because right? the maslaha, the benefit you get from commanding the good and forbidding the evil Here is, uh, it's wahmiyyah, it, it, it's likely not going to happen Whereas preserving the maslaha that you already have you know, Of not getting involved in drama or having a greater harm impact you That's yaqini, you know, that's certain, you want to preserve that so uh, a question that comes up is, what, what do you do if you're at a gathering? Maybe it's your relatives or friends, a mixed gathering, and there's evil going on. And you, uh, Imagine you're invited somewhere, you're in someone's home, you're a guest, and there's evil happening, and you're not in a position to command the good and forbid the evil either because they're older than you, they're not going to listen, or it's going to cause way too much drama, or anything like that. What do you do? The ulama say that if if you can try to engage in something else on the side, or if they're in a gathering and they're backbiting people, gossiping about people, slandering people, if you can't speak out and get them to stop, you could try to change the topic. And if you can't change the topic and they keep going on, some scholars have said, just pretend to be bored. Just pretend to be bored and act as if you know, you've lost interest and this may veer the topic into something else. right? Because you can't always extricate yourself from those situations. But if you're an elder and your word has some pull among the people and they're younger than you, then you should say something right? And it doesn't always have to be harsh. It could just be, uh, you could just say something like backbiting warning. We're in backbiting territory. Let's, uh, let's back up a little bit and change the topic. And oftentimes that's enough. Going to this condition of uh, avoiding greater harm. This is, this is where we want to focus a little bit on because often people feel that, yeah, I should say something, I should advise that person, but they're worried about the response they're going to get. And they think that, oh, this person, maybe they're going to be angry with me, maybe they'll say some harsh words to me, therefore I will avoid it. A person responding with harsh words is not a greater evil necessarily, unless they have the ability to negatively impact your life in some other way. Harsh words or scoffing at your advice, that's not a greater evil, right? What is forbidden is to command the good and forbid the evil when you know that it's going to lead to a greater harm than the harm that that person is doing, or it's going to worsen the situation, so it's going to lead to more sin, it's going to lead to more backbiting, or it may even cause that person to say things that, you know, they express disdain for the deen. You know, there are people like that. Their connection to Deen is so is so flimsy that if you push them in the corner, they may say something that actually causes them to leave the Deen of Islam altogether. Like they say something like, you know, they're angry with you, so they end up insulting something about the deen. That's a far greater evil than whatever evil they were doing beforehand. If their iman is that weak then you should probably avoid it. Yeah. So you could be silent then or try to advise in some different way. It's, there's no hard and fast rule about how you approach every situation. It depends on the person. It depends on yourself. It depends on the environment and you know, different strategies you think might work. If none of that works and you can't speak out about it, the one thing that always remains, no matter what, is hating it in your heart. And the danger is that the more we see evil happening around us, the more we get desensitized to it. And when you get desensitized to evil, what happens is you see it and you no longer even express hatred for it in your heart. So some of the Masha'ik, they say that if you're in a place or time where people are very distant from Deen and they're not listening, you should get into the habit of saying to yourself quietly When you see evil that you can't change Allahumma inna hada munkar. Just say it to yourself Oh Allah, this is evil so You're saying it to yourself in a form of a dua You're acknowledging before your creator Oh Allah, this is evil I, I recognize this is evil So you're, you're putting to words A state that you want to have in your heart Which is that you disapprove of it and if you don't do that and you see that evil day in and day out, eventually you get used to it and you don't hate it anymore. And that is the great tragedy of the age we're in. We're so bombarded with munkarat, and it's not just the West, it's it's everywhere, to the point where you just get desensitized. So the issue of greater harm or lesser harm, we, we have to find some kind of guideline for determining that. Like a person who is, uh, let's say they're reckless, they're a person of great zeal for the Deen, but they're very reckless. In that person's mind, there is no real greater harm. You know, they'll, they'll say something to anybody in a very harsh way because they don't, they don't care about consequences. So what is a greater harm to them is, is not considered. And then you have a coward who is scared to say even the the gentlest word uh, against some evil. And they think, oh, if I do that, it's a greater evil. We don't consider the coward either. So when you want to determine what is a greater evil, it's based on the person with a normal temperament. Normal as in 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 the middle. They're not a coward, nor are they reckless and foolhardy. You know, so a normal temperament of someone with a sound, normal disposition, that is the person who can best determine what would be a greater evil, what would be a lesser evil, and so on. Uh, we don't leave it to cowards, because a coward will think that everything is a greater evil. Therefore, I should just be quiet all the time. Because if I make someone mad, that's a greater evil. You know, that's not a greater evil. Them being mad at you is not a greater evil than the evil they're doing them being upset or looking cross at you or whatever. That's a coward may think that's a greater evil, but it's not. Meanwhile, the foolhardy person who's reckless, even you know, getting into a fist fight with the person afterwards, for them is not a greater evil because they don't care. So you'll see this sometimes, especially with young people, right? I saw a video. It was in one of the stands, you know, guy was on the escalator. Muslim country, he sees some guy with, I guess, his girlfriend, you know, his PDAs, you know, public displays of affection. So he goes to the guy, and he's screaming at him, and the guy yells back, and the next thing you know, they're swinging fists and then they're on the ground rolling, and there's a stand, so, you know, both of them knew how to wrestle, and then the police came and it became a huge thing. He could have just said something, that would have been enough. But he decided to put his hands on the person. And he didn't consider the second order consequences of that. Then he got locked up. So that person is not the one who determines what's the greater evil. Nor is the coward the one who determines what's the greater evil. It is the person who has a normal sound disposition. And that is what shaja'ah is. Courage, uh, which is one of the cardinal virtues in Islam. Courage is the, the golden mean between cowardice and recklessness. So, uh, another condition, and we could probably put this as the top condition, is that when a person aims to enjoin what is good and forbid what is evil, they have to have a sincere intention. They have to have a sincere intention. And that intention means that they are commanding the good and forbidding the evil because that thing is good in the sight of Allah or that thing is evil in the sight of Allah. And they wish for that thing to, if it's good, to be done, and if it's evil, for it to be stopped. Right? This is a neglected intention, because a lot of people may preach or exhort people in religious matters, and it's all based on their ego, or it's because of animosity. Maybe they don't like that person. So there's a, there's a there's an actual test you can for yourself. If you want to determine if you are sincere in commanding the good and forbidding the evil, all you have to do is ask yourself this question. Suppose you see someone doing something evil, bad, whatever it may be. If you would forbid the evil against that person for what they're doing, but you wouldn't do it if it was your friend, that means your intention is corrupt. So your friend may do the exact same evil thing, but you wouldn't say anything But because this guy does it and you don't really like him, you'll say something That indicates the niyyah is not saliha Because if the niyyah is pure, it's for the sake of Allah Whether it's your friend or whether it's a stranger you don't really like, right? The motivation has to be out of sincere love and care For the fact that this person is from the ummah of the Prophet. And we want good for everybody at the end of the day. And you don't reserve your righteous indignation and anger for those you don't like. That righteous anger should be because that thing is haram. No matter who does it. When Rasulullah forbade the evil, he forbade the evil against anyone who did evil even among his companions. If they did wrong, he would call it out. In fact, his inkar for evil would be stronger and more forceful with those who were closer to him than it would be to those who were more distant from him. Because those who were distant, he still wants to reconcile their hearts to Islam. They have to grow in their faith. They need time. So he does it in a gentler way. But with his companions who were close, they know better. They have a higher standard, a higher expectation to put on them. So it would be more forceful with them. right? So unfortunately what happens often is the opposite. right? People we don't really care for, and, or we, maybe we don't even like them. It's easy to forbid the evil and call them out. But if our friends are doing it, we don't really say anything. This should be the opposite. You know, if, you know, if you have a friend, you can tell your friend, hey, you're slipping, man, you're messing up. This is haram, stop this, because I want good for you. And you could be a little forceful too, because he knows it's coming from a place of love and concern. And maybe for a stranger, you could be a little softer because you don't know the person, right? So we have it backwards. Uh, another thing about the intention is that it can't be because of embarrassment. Right. This is a big one. This is a really big one. Uh, the mashaykh they mentioned that you know, sometimes people, uh, especially with family, they may really criticize and condemn some bad thing their family members are doing, but it's not because it's munkar in the sight of Allah. It's because it embarrasses them. They're embarrassed because they want to put out a picture that oh, we're so religious and pious and you're ruining our image. So they condemn and they get angry for that bad thing the family member is doing. But it's not because it's munkar on the side of Allah per se. It's because it makes them look bad. Right? So if you want to make sure that you're sincere, it has to be, you have to be even-handed in how you deal with it. Um, I want to give you a quote from uh, an Imam al-Nahlawi Imam al-Nahlawi, we, we mentioned him a few times in this course. He is the author of Al-Durr al-Mubaha fil- hadari wal-ibaha. It's basically a Fardain text. It was written, uh, a, he was a Syrian scholar. And he says, there's a major catastrophe that one must be careful to avoid. Namely, for the person of knowledge, when enjoining something, to perceive his own dignity due to his knowledge and the other's lowliness due to their ignorance. If this is one's motivation, then this evil is itself much viler than the evil he is forbidding. Truly no one is safe from the plotting of shaitan except one to whom Allah shows his own faults and whose insight Allah opens by the light of true guidance. So he's telling us, You can't command the good and forbid the evil because you think that you're better than that person. And this is what they would call righteous indignation. I'm the pious person and you're the impious person, so I'm going to look down on you and criticize you for all your faults because I'm better than that. I have knowledge, I have deen, and you're just slipping. You're slacking. That's coming from a place of arrogance. That, he says, is actually worse than whatever evil they're going to condemn. So this is a very... uh, You're walking on a tightrope when you're trying to fulfill this obligation. You have so many things to consider. So now, we want to talk about, after talking about some of these conditions to be aware of, let's talk about what exactly can be censured. What do you make inkar on? Because it's called an-nahi anil-munkar. So, you censure what is munkar. Meaning, what is prohibited in the Sharia. Now, Munkar is actually wider in scope than Ma'siyah. So, Ma'siyah is disobedience to Allah's commands. Munkar is wider in scope than Ma'siyah. Right? So, for example, if you see a child. Drinking wine. Is that child doing think, is this, It's not a trick question, but you got to think about it for a second. A child, let's say they're five years old, and one of their relatives has a, a beer bottle, and they pick it up and start drinking it, and you see this. Are they engaged in ma'asiyah? Well... For it to be ma'asiyah, that person has to be accountable. Because ma'asiyah means disobedience. A purposely going against the command. So for the five-year-old child drinking from the beer bottle of their relative, it's not ma'asiyah because they're not yet accountable in Sharia. But is it munkar? Mm, it's munkar. It is evil. It is bad. It's just they're not accountable for it. You see, you see what, what this means? Munkar is wider in scope than ma'asiyah. So what that means is the kid is drinking, you still do nahi'a'la right? munkar. You still stop them from doing You take it and you pour it out. Right? Because although it may not be sinful for them because they don't have accountability yet, they don't know any better, it's still munkar, so you stop it. So that's one thing to consider. Uh, so that means you can command the good and forbid the evil with children, even if they're not accountable. Right? Number two, uh, for that thing to be condemned, it needs to be mawjood, it needs to be present in the moment. It needs to be present. So that excludes someone who has already consumed wine, you know, some adult who's already consumed wine, as well as what may take place later. Let's say a person is getting dressed to go to the club. You know, you know they're going to go to the club and party and get involved in God knows what. But they haven't gone yet. So they're preparing for munkar, but they haven't done it yet. Or they did munkar last night, but they're not doing it right now. Your amr bil ma'roof wa nahi al munkar is to occur when it's mawjood, when it's present. Of course, you can criticize them and tell them off. After the fact, right, of course And of course you can tell someone Don't go to the club What you're you're about to do is haram But the the inkar is to occur when it's present When it hasn't happened yet Or when it's already happened It's not called amr bin ma'roof It's actually called wa'adh Or nasiha You're trying to uh, exhort them to what is right. right? You're not actually stopping them because it hasn't happened yet. Or you can't stop them after it's already happened. And likewise, for that thing to be condemned, not only does it have to be present, it has to be apparent. It has to be dhahir. That is going to exclude whatever sin a person is doing at home when they lock their door. That means you can't spy on people just to do Al Amr bin Right? You can't do that. The only way you could forbid something that is not apparent is if it's behind closed doors, but the sound of it travels outside of that. Right? I'll, I'll leave that to your imagination what that may look like or sound like, but if it does travel outside of that. Room where it's occurring, then yes, a person could forbid it because now it's kind of lahir in a way. Uh, so I'll give you I guess, I'll give you a simple example. For persons behind closed doors, and they're smoking marijuana, can you do in, can you do in on them? If you, well, if you don't know about it, how are you going to do it? But if the smell comes out, mm, now you can, because now although it's behind closed doors, it's now becoming apparent by means of the smell, right? Uh, or alcohol on the breath. Yeah. Well, music, if, if it's vile lyrics, for sure. If it's just, uh, I don't know, Mozart, then there's the difference of opinion about the instruments. So we just give them advice if we want to advise them. Yeah. Uh, so what are the levels of this? What does it actually look like to forbid the evil? When you hear this term, forbid the evil, what comes to your mind? This person now is going out to forbid the evil. What is he doing? What is he saying? How is he acting? What comes to mind? He's angry. Okay. What else? What might he do? Holding a stick? Yeah, maybe. Or a whip? He might talk to them yeah he might throw something May break some wine bottles he might smash some things yeah they might get violent yeah okay so there are levels to forbidding the evil and there's conditions for these so the ulama mentioned that that at the very beginning you just explain the evil nature of the action you tell them this is haram You have forbidden them from the evil, just by explaining that it's haram. That's by the tongue. Then, okay, maybe they stop, you know, maybe they're doing something haram. You say, brother, that is haram, don't do it. Maybe they stop, Alhamdulillah, that's great. But if they don't, you go to the next level, which is admonishing them politely. Admonishing them politely And that means you're not yelling You're not shouting You're just admonishing them by reminding them Of the fact that this is haram And It has evil consequences For them in this life And possible evil consequences in the hereafter And You remind them of the hereafter and To fear Allah But it's still done in a very caring Polite way And now maybe they listen and stop but if they don't, you go to the next level. You don't, you don't go to level four immediately. right? You go to level one, level two, level three. Level three would be to speak harshly with that person. Now speaking harshly with them doesn't mean you insult their shoes or their choice of attire. That has nothing to do with what they're doing. You're talking about the person. You say, oh, you want to be a corrupt, fasiq degenerate? Like, what's wrong with you? Don't you fear Allah? Uh, You're speaking like this. That does move some people. It should. Right? And hopefully they're moved by that. And you're speaking with some harshness and they stop it. But if they don't... uh, Yeah, well not yet. You go to level four. And level four is forcibly stopping the act... With your hand If you're capable That doesn't mean hitting them It would mean stopping the act So let's say, let's go to the marijuana example Okay, he's not inside the House anymore, he's outside You see the guy, he's Muslim You tell him, you know that's haram, right? And he doesn't listen Okay, you know You should really fear Allah, it's, it's not good for you In this life, it creates problems It's also haram and the Prophet ﷺ forbade all intoxicants and this is damaging to you and your iman and your hereafter. Uh, he doesn't listen. Now you escalate a little more. You speak with some force. Ah, no, he's not listening. Now you go to level four, which is if you have the ability and it's not going to cause a greater harm, you, you grab the joint from his hand. Or if he has the pipe or whatever, or the vape, you just take the vape pit and Smash it, right? I'm not telling you to do that, by the way. Because they could say, oh, that's my property. I'm going to call the police. And then you're in trouble. But let's say you have the ability and you know that's not going to happen. Because you're the elder and you have some sway. You could grab it and you could break it. But you're not using your hand. You're not smacking him. You're just taking the instrument or whatever that would stop him from doing that haram. So let's say uh, there is no instrument. So you can't actually stop with your hand like that. You would go to the next thing, which is, and this is from the ulama, Ibn Qudama al maqdisi he talks about this. I'm getting this from him. He says, uh, at that stage, you would resort to intimidation and threatening to strike the person, then this is if you have the authority to do so. Right? And that authority, I don't just mean the authority as in the law of the land, I also mean perhaps parental authority as well, right? Because it's not against the law to use physical punishment against children. That would include teenagers, right? It's not always the best idea, but, you still have some recourse. Um, this, however, in an Islamic society, for you know, someone who's not in your immediate family under you, if it's just a random person, that would be reserved for those who are vested with the authority of changing things with the hand. So that would be, you could say, the police or anybody who has that kind of authority. So let's say you're in, you know, you're in a Muslim society you can't change it with your hand physically. You can't strike the person or beat them, no. But if the police caught them doing that and wanted to stop them, they could resort to that if they had to. So the ulama generally say that when you look at the hadith, which says forbid it with your hand, and if you can't, then with your tongue, and if you can't, then with your heart. Uh, Imam al says that Changing with the hand is generally for the sultan. It's the general rule. It's for the, those who have authority. Changing with the tongue would be for those who have ilm, proper ilm. They have the ability, they know that thing is haram. They know how to speak to people. And then hating it in the heart would be just everyday person. Because maybe they don't have the requisite knowledge to speak out now we would say that for that regular person there are situations where they would need to use their tongue depending on the relationship and the ability and so on uh, but the hand would be reserved for those with authority right so i wouldn't want anyone to understand from this session that you can just go out and you know find people outside the masjid on juma doing things you don't like and just raise your hand and smack them or Double leg takedown and grab their stuff and throw a few punches. You can't do that. That'll lead to a greater evil. Um, other levels uh, or other aspects to consider as we go through this. Uh, we're actually running out of time. Uh, you have to know that the act is wrong, and you're not going out of your way to spy, uh, but you either notice it or two upright people tell you. Uh, You explain that it's wrong because they may be ignorant, so you don't default to condemning them harshly. They may just not know. And you do it with verbal admonitions or harsh words if that doesn't work. You can use some harsh words as long as they're not immoral words. And so you have hand, intimidation, uh, using, you know, if you have authority, you can use the hand. For you to do this, though, you need to have knowledge. You need to have your own piety, your own commitment to the deen. And ideally, you need to have good character, because with good character, you're able to control your anger, because if you don't have good character, it means you can't control your anger. And if you can't control your anger, it means that you may not be commending the good and forbidding the evil for the fact that it's that thing is evil, but because now you're angry and you're, it's your nefs, right? And some scholars say that it's good if you're going to do this to actually have reduced dependence on other people because if you are depending on other people, maybe you're tempted to compromise because you know, if you say something, it's going to affect your bottom line. It's going to affect your pocket. So the more financially independent you are, the easier it is to condemn the wrong because no one can really penalize you for that. So, a uh, couple of points at the end here. Can you command the good and forbid the evil against your parents? Mom and dad are backbiting. Yeah. The answer is yes. However, a big however, they're still your parents. So Imam Madik was asked this question. He said, Yes, but you still have to lower the the wing of mercy. You still have to be humble. So the way you do it is very carefully. So the Mashaykh, they say that normally when you command the good and forbid the evil, it's not a condition that the person doesn't get angry with you. They may get angry with you. So what? You're not purposely trying to create fitna. But with your parents, you have to take extra steps to, make, to try to make sure they don't get angry. So you have to do it extra, with extra sensitivity. And that's not always easy, right? Because some parents can just take any criticism as an attack and they're going to pull rank on you and say, yeah, "I'm your mom, I'm your dad." right? Yeah, go to the garage. right? Who are you to, Who are you?? Right? So you have to be careful. But yes, the principle remains. Um, we said this module, or this class for this final module, is also about something else. What else what's that other thing? Commanding the good and forbidding the evil, and Dawa, right? This... Da'wah is a kind of commanding the good and forbidding the evil It's really the ultimate one Because you're commanding the greatest good Which is tawheed And you're forbidding the greatest evil Which is shirk Why do we talk about it here? Well, because we're in a society where We really have a mandate as Muslims To engage in da'wah on some level Now, da'wah comes from da'a, yad'u, which means to call, to invite, to to invoke, to summons. But legally speaking, it means to invite other people to Allah and His Messenger, to la ilaha illallah, muhammadun rasulullah, to become Muslim. And generally, it's a community obligation that doesn't fall on every single individual. But please remember the definition of farkifaya because the definition says it's a community obligation that if a sufficient number of people are doing it, then the sin would fall off of the rest of the people. But if there's not enough people doing it, it becomes an obligation on everyone. And if there's not enough people doing it, then everyone's sinful. Now I ask you, Billahi, do you think there's enough people out there doing dawah This is why we include it here in the right? This means that you at least need to know the basics of dawah and how to do it, and you should make that something. It should be a part of your life where you actually invite people to Islam. And I don't mean, oh, I invite them just by being a nice person. Okay, they could know you're a nice person for 20 years, but they've never heard the message of Islam. What kind of dawah is that? right? Dawah doesn't just mean being nice. It means being nice. And with your character, leading them to understand where your character comes from. And that's where the da'wah comes in. This is from Allah and His Messenger, sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. The reason why you like my character is because this is the guidance of Allah and His Messenger. So I invite you to that as well. So da'wah can be individually obligatory. Allah Ta'ala says ila Rabbika bil hikmati al-hasana wa He gives it as a command. Call, invite others into the way of your Lord with wisdom and good advice and debate in a way that is best. So this can be an individual obligation. The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa said anni walaw Convey on my behalf even if it's a single verse. If that's all you know, is a single ayah of Qur'an, you have a command to convey. A command to convey. And the Prophet also cautioned us that the person who conceals knowledge will receive a bridle of fire on the Day of Judgment. So if you don't speak about Islam to people when you have the opportunity, then there's a fear that you could be concealing knowledge. Right? If people ask, you have to tell them, you have to call them, you should invite them So this is to guide people from darkness into light It is to establish the hujah of Allah, the proof of Allah over creation And to fill the earth with goodness So what I want to end with and Because we've gone over the time as typically happens um, The way you do dawah varies from place to place and person to person. And I think that would require a full workshop. I did a workshop about a decade ago on the nuts and bolts of dawah. It was about four or five hours worth of, of lessons where we looked at practicals and you know, the hands-on experience of how you actually do dawah. So we could probably do that in the future. But I wanna leave you just with one point. The stronger the certainty you have as a Muslim in La ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah, the greater the effect your da'wah will have. Right? You have to have it yourself. The one who's lacking something can't give it to someone else. And one of the great mashayikh he mentioned this point the greater certainty يقين, you have, the greater the effect that your yaqeen will have on others bringing them to Islam. And he derived that point from a hadith. The Hadith about the Prophet sallallahu when he journeyed to Taif, and he was pelted with stones. You remember that story when him and Zaid were ejected from Taif, and the chiefs uh, sicked the Sufahat al-Qaum, the foolish village bumpkins, uh, against them, pelting them with stones. And as he escaped and left for safety, the angel presented the opportunity to crush. The people of Ta'if for this gross offense against his honor What did he say? When given that opportunity he said Rather I hope that Allah will bring forth from their loins A people who worship Allah alone And do not associate any partner with him And his hope is not wishful thinking His hope is a strong hope And subhanallah The people of Ta'if became Muslim and the effects of that da'wah manifested. And those descendants, the descendants of those who were pelting with stones, embraced Islam. So they, he said from this point the stronger yaqeen you have, the more impact your da'wah will be. So it's all about personal development yourself for da'wah. So you guys were looking at the slide. I was like, is our, did the slide start working? You guys are noticing something. Yeah, they're playing him. So I have this really nice looking slide here that you can't see unless you have the phone open. You see the nice balloons. Alhamdulillahi ladhi bi ni'amatihi salihat. With nice balloons and confetti. Right? All praise is due to Allah, by whose grace all noble endeavors are completed. Alhamdulillah. So this ends the fardain. Now here I have in the slides what we covered. I won't go through all of that. We'll go through the review and we'll discuss these things. We covered uh, a lot of material in these 11 modules. Alhamdulillah. So in what remains in the next minute, I just want to tell you what's coming up. November 17th. So, what's today's date? Today's the third. So, there's no class next week. November 17th, we'll come again to to, to Bardine class, but it's not a module. It's just going to be a review session, open Q&A, and a discussion on the core areas of each module that we wanna study and what's gonna be covered on the test. I've already made the test i'm ready to send it out but i want to do that session first once we do that session i will then send out the test in the whatsapp group and maybe we can put it in the email as well the link on the website and you will have from november 18th i guess the day after until december 1st I'll give you a lot of time and it's an open book test it's you can consult the slides it's for you and I know you're thinking of those really detailed tests on the fiqh of salat and all of that. It's not going to be like that. that. That will make the test 50 pages long. It's just covering the core areas in each module with uh, essential questions. And you can go to the slides and consult them for your answers, inshallah. And I also want to administer an oral test. And the oral test... I want to schedule, you can schedule with me, insha'Allah, between uh, November 20th to December 1st. Like, you, Really, you have all those days, pick a day. It'll take 15 minutes, 20 minutes max. It's only eight questions. And it's not much different from the written test, but it's more about general understanding and principles. And, you know, don't worry, you'll do fine, insha'Allah. Don't stress out. Uh, the oral test is more for me to just assess right? Um, On December, what's the date? December 2nd, right? So the day after the cutoff for the oral test, we'll have the family night. Family night is dedicated to, yeah, we changed it. Yeah, so the second. So second, we'll have family night, and it'll be basically our graduation. Now, for you to graduate, I need you to take the test. <laughs> so if I only get two people taking the test, there'll be two graduates. Uh, anybody who takes the test, inshallah, you're going to graduate, and uh, we'll have you know a nice function. And this is where I want to appeal to all of you: uh, if you would be so kind and willing to give some words, you know, about your own experience, uh, as long as they're good, um, <laughs> about the Dain uh, program uh, for family night, inshallah. We'll have an open mic for that. And we'll just present the certificates and some other things. And then inshallah, we'll have a nice time, Alhamdulillah, to celebrate this milestone. This is a huge milestone, subhanallah, it's, uh, I, I, out of all the classes and programs we've had here, this has been the most muwaffaq, you know, just given a lot of tawfiq, you know, the biggest, most consistent turnout and participation. Uh, And it's involved people from all around the world. You know, I I get questions from people from India, from Germany, from the UK, from different places. So uh, may Allah make it a means of benefit for all of you and your families and for others beyond that we don't even know. there's a saying in Arabic, The one who saved among us on the Day of Judgment, let him take his brother by the hand. So maybe this is a means of, of such a great khayr for people that it becomes a, you know, a, a great means for us on the Day of Judgment, inshallah ta'ala.